one biblical book that has captured the imagination of so many people throughout the centuries, including mine, is the book of Ephesians. As you read it, it takes you soaring high up into the heights of biblical theology, and yet it also lands you squarely into these strikingly practical implications. And what makes this book even more interesting is that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter while he was inside a prison for the gospel. So the churches at that time knew that this meant harsher persecution for them. And to make matters worse, apparently there were some internal divisions happening inside the church. So Paul is in prison, and the churches were facing tremendous pressure from without and from within. In that situation, what does Paul talk about? What does he write to the churches to encourage them and guide them? He writes to them about their new identity in Christ. He talks about who they are as God's new people. Why talk about that? That's because to the degree that you understand and access your identity in Christ, the more power you will have to live the Christian life despite anything. That's what we want to understand in this new series called New Humanity. We want to access the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. And to do that, we're going to go through the whole book of Ephesians, staying here for a couple of months because that's how crucial it is. And so last week, we've looked at the first section, and there we saw Paul give us this powerful summary of our blessings in Christ. Verse 3. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing, which of course transcends any kind of material blessing. I mean, you can be as rich as Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, and you might have the money to purchase whatever you want to change your external situations, but if you don't have Christ, then you won't even have enough spiritual resources to get a fraction of a lasting joy. But Paul says, you're far, far richer than that. There's no special blessing that has been withheld from you through Christ. But perhaps you're not feeling rich. Perhaps you feel like you are a spiritual beggar. You know, you're just getting through one day at a time with enough spiritual crumbs to get through the day. What do you need? Paul says what you need is that you need to pray that you may know. And this passage that we're going to look at today is going to teach us how. Let's read Ephesians 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, 
not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, that's one long prayer that Paul gives us, and it's going to teach us three things about the riches that we have in Christ. It's going to teach us the key to withdraw it, the contents, and the magnitude. It's going to teach us the key, the contents, and the magnitude of our riches. First, let's look at the key to withdraw our riches. Now, this is a jam-packed prayer, right? But don't get lost in it. The heart of the prayer is in verse 18. It's so that you may know. It's so that you may know the riches that you have. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, let me use an illustration that I heard from Tim Keller when he used this passage. He says, imagine an eight-year-old little girl and she's in an orphanage and she's looking for a mommy. And one day, a woman comes and she says, I'm looking for a little girl to adopt as my daughter. And so they sat down and they talked. And the more they talked, the more they longed for each other. And so at the end of the conversation, the woman says, I'm looking for a little girl to adopt. Would you be my daughter? What's the little girl going to do? She's not going to say, can I check your bank accounts first? She's not going to say, can I check your resume first? No. All the little girl is going to do, she's going to jump up and hug her and say, mama, right? Because all the little girl is concerned about is finding her mommy, as all children should, right? But then Keller asks, well, what if this woman who's looking to adopt is actually one of the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world? If she tells that to the little girl, would it matter that much to the little girl? Probably not so much, right? Because all the little girl is concerned about is finding her mommy. But as the little girl starts to grow older and mature, then the mother has to come and start to say, I want you to know that because of who you are in me, you already have this vast resources and influence in the world. You're going to be able to help so many people and do so many good things. That's what you have. That's who you are because you are my daughter. And that's the sort of picture that the New Testament shows us. You know, when you become a Christian, you're born again. And Peter says at the start, you're like a newborn baby. And what do newborn babies do when they see their mother? All they think about is, ah, there's the breast, ah, there's the milk. That's all they're concerned with, just as babies should, right? And so for many of us, for most of us Christians, the way we met Jesus Christ was we were just looking for God's love. We were looking for God's forgiveness or for some help or strength to face a crisis. And that's how we met Christ. And that's wonderful. But as we mature and grow older, God's going to start expanding our understanding of who we are in Him. He's going to show us the riches that we have in Him. And so when you look at Paul's prayer, what does he pray for? He prays that we may know. Remember, the churches were facing tremendous pressure at this time. 
And yet Paul does not pray for their situations to be changed. He does not pray for some special blessing for them, although those are not bad prayers, right? What does Paul pray as their biggest problem? Paul says, what you most need is to know your riches. He's saying, you still have no idea how vast and deep your resources are. You're still not tapping into it. If you tap into that, you're going to have the power to face this life. Do you know your riches? Are you withdrawing and accessing that in your life? Well, here's one quick test to ask yourself whether you are accessing that. You can ask yourself, are you saying, I know God loves me, but it's not enough. I know God is with me, but I'm still afraid. I'm still worried. Well, if you're still worried and afraid, Paul says, you don't really know yet. It's one thing to know that honey is sweet, right? But it's another thing to taste and understand that honey is sweet. And see, how then do we start to taste the riches that we have in Christ? What's the key? Well, one way that people have been trying to do that, and this is the wrong way, is that people say, Oh, I know this truth. Now it's up to me. I have to try harder. I have to put in more effort. Question, has that ever worked for you? Not so much, right? Because you're still relying on yourself. That's not the way this works. No, what we need is God to come and make it real for us. Next week in chapter 2, we're going to see Paul talk about our salvation, how we receive it by grace through faith, not by works. But what I want you to see today from Paul's prayer is that even our spiritual growth happens by grace through faith, not by our own strength. You see, many Christians, they receive their salvation by faith, but once they enter in, they then switch back to relying on themselves. No, 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 no you're going back to what never worked in the first place, right? You're not the one saving yourself. Only Jesus saves from beginning to end. And so look, what does Paul do? Paul, by faith, prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Because without the spirit of God, you will not have your hearts enlightened. It's not gonna happen. You need the Spirit of God to come and make those riches so real to you that it affects you all the way through. That it's going to dispel those fears away and humble your pride and empower you for service. You need the Spirit of God to do that for you. Without Him, you will do nothing. Without Him, you will know nothing. So if you want to access the riches that you have in Christ, pray, pray that you may know and ask God for His Spirit to come and reveal these things and make you taste your riches in Christ. That's the key. That's the key. And you see, when you do that, you're going to start to experience the contents of those riches. And Paul prays for three things here, three aspects of our salvation that every believer should know. There's his calling, his inheritance, and his power. 
And Paul says, the deeper you understand these three things, the more power you're going to have. Three things. First, Paul prays that you may know the hope to which he has called you. There's God's calling. You know, when we talk about hope, we say we hope for a lot of things. We hope we never get COVID. We hope our business recovers. We hope our family stays safe. We say we hope for a lot of things, but this kind of hope is more like a wishful thinking, right? We're not really sure. But when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about a certainty. There's a confidence, an assurance, and even a boldness to it. Now, what hope do we have that it makes us confident and bold? It's that God called us. It's His calling for us. Now, we can talk a lot of things about that, but one aspect I want to show you can best be explained by pointing you to another passage that Paul wrote about our calling. In 1 Corinthians, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul says, this is your calling. Consider your calling. You were not chosen because you're better. In other words, if you're a Christian, you are not a Christian because you're better than other people. It's not. God called you because he chose you. He didn't choose you because you were better. He chose you simply because he loved you. And therefore, that means I never earned any of this. I didn't achieve any of this. It's all by grace. And the more you taste that calling, that hope, the more it's going to make you supremely confident and yet utterly humble. It's going to make you supremely confident because no matter what happens in life, whether you become rich or poor, successful or not, whatever happens, what is most important and true about you, that you are called and loved by God, that's never going to be taken away. It stays for good. And therefore, you can be confident no matter what happens in life. In fact, no matter who you meet in life, you can be confident you won't feel inferior. Even though this person is far more richer, more powerful, more successful than you, you won't feel any less. Because what is most true and important about you was never based on any of that. It's based on God calling you. You are chosen. And therefore, you can stand beside kings and tycoons and geniuses, and you won't feel any less. You were chosen by God, and it makes you supremely confident. And yet, also, utterly humble. Because that means, when I talk to people, I'm aware that they might even be better than me. Even when I talk to a non-Christian, I'm aware that this guy might actually be a better person than me. 
Because the only reason I'm a Christian is because God called me, not because I'm better than this guy. No. And therefore, when I talk to other people, I can't go looking down and sneering at them and thinking I'm better than this guy and this guy, whether they're a Christian or not. No. The only reason that I'm here is because God chose me by His love. It's all by grace. And therefore, it humbles me and it makes me confident. Are you growing in that sense of confidence and humility? Paul says, you should know the hope to which he has called you. Pray that you may know. Know his calling. And secondly, know his glorious inheritance in the saints. You know, several years ago, I studied this passage and I thought Paul was talking about our inheritance, like eternal life and joy. But actually, it says the riches of his glorious inheritance. What exactly is God's glorious inheritance? What does that mean? Well, Paul says God's inheritance is in the saints. That means the church is God's glorious inheritance. What does that mean? You know, when you go back to the Old Testament, King Solomon, when he prayed in the temple, he talks about how God chose, out of all the nations, God chose Israel to be his inheritance. And now God chose the church as his inheritance. What does that mean? Well, let's park that here for a moment. And let's go down to verse 23 to understand that better. In that passage, Paul says the church is also his body, the fullness of him. Now that means the church is God's ambassadors to this world. The world sees the fullness of God's glory and grace through the church. We are his body. Now, how do you start to connect the two dots here? Well, let me use an illustration to explain this. You've probably seen parents attend in an awarding ceremony, a graduation ceremony, where their children receive a prestigious award and their faces are beaming with pride and joy, right? On the other hand, you've probably seen on the news some parents being interviewed where their children are caught committing a grave crime and you see their faces are devastated. Why? Well, parents naturally just love their children so much that their hearts are bound to their children. They have bound themselves to their children. And therefore, our children becomes our glory and our beauty. Or they are our shame and our ugliness. Our children are our fullness. They're our inheritance. And you see, Paul says, God has so bound up himself to the church He's chosen the church and he's bound himself to the church so much so that they are his glorious inheritance. They are his fullness. Do you understand that? Are you tasting that in your heart? If you do more and more, you're going to sense a comforting challenge in your heart. It's a challenge on the one hand because you're representing God and therefore Live holy. Do not sin. But also on the other hand, it's going to be a great comfort to you because you know 
that you are God's prized possession. You are his inheritance. You know, in the late 19th century, the great Indian evangelist Sadhu Sundar Singh, when he became a Christian as a teenager, he was poisoned by his brothers, and then he was kicked out of his home. He miraculously recovered from that, and then he devoted the rest of his life to proclaiming the gospel. And one day, he was preaching near the home of his father, so he decided to pay a visit. But the whole visit really broke his heart because his father treated him like an outcast. Now, if you're not familiar with that, it's pretty much like you're treated like you have COVID. So Sundar was made to sit at a distance, and when his father gave him water, he held the jug high above and poured it out into Sundar's hands. And when Sundar saw all this, it broke his heart, but by the grace of God, here's what happens. Here's what he says. When I saw this treatment, I could not restrain the tears flowing from my eyes that my father, who used to love me so much, now hated me as if I was an untouchable. In spite of all this, my heart was filled with inexpressible peace. I thanked him for this treatment also, and respectfully, I said goodbye and went away. In the fields, I prayed and thanked God and then slept under a tree, and in the morning, continued my way. What happened? What happened here was that the Spirit of God came and it made His riches in Christ so real to Him that it's not only challenging Him, it's comforting Him so much so. Are you sensing a growing challenge and comfort in your heart? Paul says, pray that you may know the riches of God's inheritance in you. Pray that you may know that you are His inheritance. And thirdly, Paul prays that we may know the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. There's His power. Now, all the commentaries say that Paul is quite excessive here. You know, the, the words that Paul uses here are something similar to our words hyper and mega and dynamite. So what Paul is sort of saying here is, I want you to experience the hyper mega dynamite in your life. He's trying to convey the absolute infinity of God's power. He's saying that power is what? It's working toward us who believe. In other words, if you're a Christian, that power that created the whole universe is working for your good. That absolute power that controls every molecule there is, that sustains everything, is working for your good. That means your life, whatever happens in your life, nothing is senseless, nothing is random. Everything is arranged by God. All things at all times is working for your good. You know, the classic example of this comes from the Old Testament, the story of Joseph, right? Long story short, this guy's life is a life where everything that could go wrong goes wrong. Everything goes wrong. 
He is betrayed by his brothers and he's put into a pit. And in that pit, you know, he must have prayed, Lord, please rescue me from this pit. But he's not rescued. He's sold into slavery. And in his slave life, he must have prayed, Lord, please rescue me from this slavery. And he's not rescued. He's put into a prison. And in that prison, he must have prayed, Lord, please rescue me from this prison. Please let this man remember me when he talks to Pharaoh. And he's not rescued. He's forgotten and he rots there for a while. Everything that could go wrong goes wrong for this man. Everything. And yet at the end, Joseph gets into a position where he is able to rescue the whole land from a severe famine. At the end of it all, he looks at his brothers and he says, you guys intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. He's saying, if God had answered any of my prayers back then, then we would all be starving right now. It felt like my whole life kept on going worse to worse, but God was actually arranging all things by His power to effect the good of our salvation. And Paul says, that power, that power is working toward us who believe. It's working for our good. Why then are you anxious? Why are you worried? If God is for you, who can be against you? Know this and you will be fearless. Know the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Pray that you may know. Pray that you may know His calling, His inheritance, and His power. And the more you know these riches, the more power you're going to have to live the Christian life despite anything. Do you know these riches? Pray for it. Indeed, Paul says, you have to pray for it according to the magnitude of our riches in Christ. Now try to imagine for a moment, looking at Jesus Christ, what do you see? Maybe in your imagination, you're seeing Jesus Christ, you know, blessing little children, teaching the multitudes, walking in the water, multiplying loaves and fishes, or maybe praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Those, those are all great pictures. But those are all pictures when Christ was still here on earth. But the Christ that is today is a Christ who has died and risen and exalted far above all that. Look at these verses. Paul says, Pray according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This means Jesus is no longer clothed in perishable flesh like ours. Jesus is now clothed in imperishable glory. He is the exalted king whose radiance and brilliance and glory 
when we see it would, would destroy us. You know, in the book of Revelations, when the apostle John saw the exalted Jesus, what happens? He falls down as though dead. It was too overwhelming to be in the presence of the exalted king. And see, Paul says, that same power of God that exalted Christ to such heights is the same power working in you to give you your riches. It's the same power. And therefore, when you pray for your riches, pray according to that magnitude. And remember what we said about verse 23, about the church being his body, about being the fullness of him. Now, you may be wondering, you're looking at yourself, you're looking at the other Christians, and you may be wondering, how in the world are we supposed to be the fullness of God? Well, the answer is, is because the exalted king is the one who fills all in all. The exalted king is the one who's going to fill us to his fullness. That's how rich we are. That's the magnitude. That's the ceiling of our riches in Christ. That's why when C.S. Lewis was thinking about this, here's what C.S. Lewis says. If we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. That's what we are in for. That's the magnitude of our riches in Christ. And so, when you look at yourself and you find nothing like Jesus in there, what should you do? When you look at yourself and all you see is a person full of fears, lacking self-control, a person who keeps giving in to their lust or pride, what should you do? What you should never do is to say, ah, I just don't have it in me. I just can't. Never say that because it was never about you in the first place. It's the exalted king who's going to fill you to his fullness. You're going to be full of his riches. And therefore, never ever settle for the rags and the crumbs when the king shares you his riches. Don't settle. Why would you settle? Don't you know how much it cost him so that he can give you his riches? You know, there's this passage in 2 Corinthians that says, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Christ was crucified in weakness so that now in God's power he can give you the spiritual riches. You know, for several months now, I've been living with a weakness of my own. Several months ago, I injured my wrist or thumb area badly, and it's been in pain ever since. In my bad days, I can't grip tightly, I can't open my arms wide, and it's a weakness that renders me quite unable to do pretty much most things that I do everyday life. It's a weakness that I've been living with. 
And if and when this weakness gets healed by God's grace completely, I'll be jumping for joy. But you know why it's still here after all these months? That's because my baby daughter spends every waking moment of her life living the most dangerous life she can possibly have. She's climbing everything and diving off everything, twisting and turning all kinds of acrobatic stunts. And if I'm at the wrong place at the wrong time, which happens many times already, the only way I could catch her is to use this hand. And, you know, even as an imperfect father, there's absolutely no hesitations to catch her, even if it means twisting this again badly in pain. I want you to know that Christ didn't just have a bad wrist pain. He was crucified in his weakness. He was crucified in his weakness to give you his riches now by the power of God. And let me close by asking you to think about this more. If Christ let himself be crucified in weakness for you, how much more then will he now live by the power of God for you? He's going to fill you to his fullness. Don't settle. Pray that you may know. Come and pray with me right now. Pray that you may know. Let's pray. Our glorious Father, Father of glory, we know, Lord, that you are powerful beyond measure. It's beyond us, Lord. But you tell us that through Jesus Christ, that power is working for our good. So, Lord, we pray right now, asking for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to enlighten our hearts so that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what is the riches of your glorious inheritance in the church, what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. Lord, we pray for these things, that we may know and be filled to the fullness of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for these riches that you have given us through the person of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that and we rest in that. May we know and may we live according to that. We pray for all these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, our exalted King, in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining our online worship. I pray that you may know these riches in your life. God bless you.